All right. The power of the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you that the power of the resurrection comes upon this message, Lord. I pray, Father God, that by your spirit, you would invade the, part, the, the parts of our heart that most need the power of your resurrection manifested in us. I pray, Father God, that as your word goes forth, it shatters hard hearts. I pray, Father God, that we would have soft hearts to hear what you're saying to us and walk in the revelation that's released. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I started out uh, tackling this message two or three ways and ended up in hours and hours before the Lord asking him how to kind of convey what the power of the resurrection actually means to us. And on Good Friday, we heard about the monstrous suffering that Jesus endured for us and we heard that he never wavered on the road that he knew he had to walk. The crushing in the Garden of Eden, the pain that he went through, the suffering, the contempt, the scorn, nothing moved him from his purpose. And just as he knew the cross was coming, he knew that there was something beyond the cross that would settle our eternity. And he actually spoke openly about this to his disciples. But for whatever reason, it just didn't get through. Do you remember that incident where he takes his disciples to the area of Caesarea Philippi and he comes to this place where uh, there's a grotto and they, they, they call that place the gates of Hades and he made this declaration over us, the ecclesia, the church, that the gates of Hades would not prevail against the ecclesia. Do you remember that? Do you know what the next thing was that Jesus did following releasing that revelation? Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time... Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. That's pretty straightforward, is it not? This is a man who spoke with such authority into these guys' lives that a seasoned fisherman would drop everything that he had ever done for his entire life to become a fisherman just at the word of Jesus. And yet this one, this one didn't seem to sink in. Later on, when he healed the boy who was thrown by a spirit into the fire with the epilepsy, just after that incredible miracle, he said it again, Matthew 17, 22 to 23. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him and the third day he will be raised up. Raised up, that means the story doesn't finish when he's killed. Is that right? But in the, in the end of that verse, it says, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand what was going to happen after he died. And the third time was just before he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Matthew 20, verse 17 to 19. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold... You know, when Jesus says, behold, he wants you to get what he's about to say. Is that right? Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. That's pretty straightforward. And the third day he will rise again. 
We are here because of our faith in the resurrection. And just as three times he prophesied his resurrection, three times he raised people from the dead. Part of this, I suggest to you, was a demonstration of the authority that he had over sin and over death. He raised, he interrupted a funeral at a place called Nain when a widow's son was already being taken to the burial site and raised him from the dead. He took Jairus' daughter and raised her up to life. And then, of course, he raised Lazarus. And just before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said this to Martha, John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. This is one of the I am statements of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha said, yes. Do you believe it? Here is the cornerstone of our faith. Here is the question each of us must answer. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus was physically raised from that grave on the third day? Death forever defeated, eternal life given to us because of the single greatest event in all of human history. And the resurrection is not just power over death, it is part of who Jesus is. I am the resurrection and the life. It is part of who he is, his identity. The resurrection separates Jesus from every other religious belief system. Doesn't matter how passionate you get about Muhammad, he's dead. It's no matter how much you try to apply the teachings of the Lord Buddha to your life, he is dead. Nobody disputes that. I'm not being controversial. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. And I would suggest to you that every other religious belief system apart from this one that we are giving glory to God about today is just a deceit. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And all through Jesus' earthly ministry, he prepared for the cross, knowing that beyond the cross lay the resurrection. And as we've already heard, he tried to convey it again and again to those who followed him. The resurrection makes the victory of Jesus complete. His death paid the price, the penalty for our sin because he was the perfect sinless sacrifice, but it is his resurrection that makes our victory over sin not just possible, it makes it part of our birthright. Do you get this? In John 1.12, John says of Jesus, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Right here where he says to them he gave the right. Right is the Greek word exousia, authority. To those who believe in his name, he gave the authority to become children of God. What does a child have? It has an inheritance. It has a birthright. Knowing the truth of who he was and what lay beyond the cross gave him the strength to persevere when crushed in the garden, gave him the strength when he was mocked and spat upon, when he was beaten and scourged, when he was rejected by those who days before had worshipped him, when he was being nailed to the cross. All of that was he had a perseverance that went through every single obstacle. When he was nailed naked to the cross and openly put to scorn, still he took it because he knew that in three days' time there would be a resurrection. And in the power of that resurrection lies his victory and your victory because he did it for you. He did it for you and he did it for me. And we did not deserve it.
everything that Jesus has ever prophesied has either come to pass, is coming to pass now, or is about to come to pass. Not one thing failed. And when he talked about how he was going to be scorned, look at what happened to him on the cross. In Matthew 27, 39, those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, hey, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others. He himself, he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Liars. They wouldn't have believed him no matter what happened. Their only intent was to mock him and to scorn him, to pour contempt about on him, to ridicule him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Contempt and scorn were poured out upon the king of glory and their emphasis was that for him to save, uh, to do what he was doing, he had to come down miraculously off that cross. But we're here today because Jesus went one better. In Matthew 27, 50, it says that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. His cry was, it is finished. And when he made that declaration of the end of his human suffering and of the end of his bearing our sin, he yielded up his spirit. Nobody took it from him because he had authority over sin and death. Nobody could take his life. He could only give it of his own free will after taking the fullness of all our sin, all our iniquity, all our shame, everything that is contemptible about you and I, he took in that moment upon the cross and when he knew he had taken it all, he said, it is finished and not a moment before. Your price has been paid. And then came the most important moment in human history. I'm going to read you the account from Matthew 28 because we've been working our way through Matthew. It's also recorded in the other Gospels. Matthew 28 verse 1 says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. We were singing about it this morning. The stone has been rolled away. His countenance, this is the angel, was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. They just were laid out on the ground. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And they saw the empty tomb. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. This thing is done. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. You know, fear and joy are a great combination to walk through your Christian life with. Fear and joy simultaneously. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord will keep you from things that could completely derail your life. The fear of the Lord should be something that inspires you, that provokes you, that protects you, that brings you into the fullness of what he has for you. Those who walk in the fear of the Lord walk in wisdom that is from God. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. He rose from the grave. He was physically resurrected. Why do I keep hammering this point? Because this tenet of our faith that Jesus Christ was physically raised from the grave is the cornerstone of our faith. Am I exaggerating? 
It is the Apostle Paul who brings out this truth. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. The problem with the Western church is that the Western church has tried to explain away the supernatural. But the Bible here says that without the supernatural resurrection from the dead, you are wasting your time even being here this morning. This is a challenge for the ages. This is where Paul makes it clear that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually the cornerstone of our faith. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters about what you believe. I'm not saying it. Paul said it. Your faith is futile without the resurrection. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters about what you believe. If Christ is not risen, there is no point to your belief. If Christ is not risen, he's dead. And if Christ is dead, you are worshipping and putting your faith in a corpse. If Christ is not risen, he lied. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The truth. If Christ is dead, you are worshipping and putting your faith in a deceased man, not the Son of God, and you are still in your sins, the Apostle Paul says to us. You are still in your sins. What does that mean, to still be in your sins? Simply that without the resurrection of Jesus, sin and death still rule over you. You remain under the law of sin and death, eternally separated from a holy God. This is how important the resurrection is. In fact, salvation itself hinges on the truth of the resurrection. Because in Romans 10 verse 9, the same apostle Paul says, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you do not believe this, you will not be saved. That's the inference of what that scripture says. Have you ever led anybody in the sinner's prayer? Have you ever used that scripture to do so? I've done it many times. And I've looked for that spark of recognition in the person that I'm ministering to, to see that spark of faith that they actually believe the word of the gospel that Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father because that means that they are embracing the supernatural at its core. The core of the supernatural is Jesus Christ. If you go after the supernatural, you might get a bit of Jesus, but you won't necessarily. But if you go after Jesus Christ, you'll always get the supernatural because that's who he is. And so we see by this beautiful scripture, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh, what else do I have to do? Do I have to go to Mass four times at Easter? Do I have to do 16 Hail Marys for five days in a row because I kicked the dog the other day? Do I have to do this penance? Do I have to, like the, like the, founder, the, the, the man instrumental in the Protestant faith, do I have to go lay out in the snow in the middle of winter in Germany because I want to pay some sort of price for my fallen nature? No. If you believe in your heart that, Jesus raised, that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess him with your lips, you will be saved. Christianity, the reason that you, hear is, you are here is about faith, not works. The works flow from your faith, not the other way around. And if you really dig into that truth, you will see that all the works that you have been called to have already been spoken of in heaven and prepared for you. 
It's not about your works. It's about this simple faith. God raised Jesus from the dead and that proved that he was, he, he was Lord over the grave, Lord over sin and death. He had the command of all eternity and every realm. Sometimes I listen to, I hesitate to call them preachers. It's more like motivational speakers. And I sometimes get the impression that if we just do our best through life and trust that the ledger of what we have done during our lives records more positive than negative, I'll end up in a good place. It's not enough to be a good person. It's not enough to be motivated to do good works. It's not enough to be motivated to walk in some sort of pseudo-victory because our victory is actually in Christ and his victory is in us. We are, the, we are the fruit of what he did. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God. We were all born under this curse because of what happened in the garden and because of what was passed down from generation to generation. You are all under a curse of generational sin until Jesus. The curse of the law of sin and death. Every man, woman and child has inherited a fallen nature. You only have to look at creation and some of the things that have gone wrong to see that creation is actually broken. It is incomplete. It is not how God originally designed it to be. When sin and death came into the world, it affected every single realm. But Jesus broke the curse, the curse of the law of sin and death. The cross paid the price for every sin of every man, woman and child and it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes his victory complete. It is incomplete without the resurrection. When he rose from the grave, he broke the curse of the law of sin and death. He proved his identity as the Son of God and in doing so, he established ours. For those who believe, he gave the authority to become children of God if you believe. Is that right? And our destiny was restored. I keep going to Paul. I'm just going to keep going there. I'm not getting distracted. I'm listening to Paul this morning. He says this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, after I got saved, this was my favourite scripture in all the Bible. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can spend your entire life trying to prove your righteousness or you can receive it as an extravagant gift from your heavenly Father because he loves you. This is the amazing mercy of God that turned Paul from a Pharisee of Pharisees, the ultimate Pharisee, into an apostle of grace, a man obsessed by religion and legality and legalism suddenly had his whole life turned upside down and he made it his determined purpose that he was going to know this man who interrupted him on the road to Damascus as he was going to persecute and imprison people just like you and I. You can spend your entire life trying to prove your righteousness or you can receive it. This is the horrible beauty of the cross. I look at the suffering of Jesus so beautifully expressed by Daphne, Sylvia's friend in that prophetic painting. I can see all the suffering there. But when I look over there, I see that that cross is empty and so is the tomb. The cross is empty. So is the tomb. That's why I've got a cross that I wear around my neck and it's got no Jesus on it because he's not there. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> the horrible beauty of the cross. My sin 
was imputed to Jesus. His righteousness was imputed to me. It's not even fair, is it? There's nothing fair about God. He's extravagantly good. He's extravagantly generous. He's extravagantly gracious. This is the amazing mercy of God that turned Paul from a Pharisee into an apostle of grace and Paul put the resurrection at the centre of knowing Jesus. And from the moment of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he had one clearly stated goal for his life. He wanted to know this Jesus, the God who had died for him even while Paul hated him and persecuted his followers. The God of grace, such was the power of his encounter that his whole life was focused about this one thing, I want to know him. This was his declaration. How serious was he? Well, we all know that talk is cheap, right? And actions speak louder than words. Is that right? I was reminded of Luke's football analogy a few weeks ago. We talked about the guy who comes into the team and he talks it up and he looks big and then he called, then he, he said that that guy was like, he's big for nothing. In other words, when push came, comes to shove, When the battle is fierce, he's the guy who goes missing. Paul is not big for nothing. (laughs) Paul was big for something. Let me take you through what Paul said when he made his declaration and the circumstances in which he made it because you'll see in what he says that he puts the cross and and the resurrection at the centre of this. In Philippians 3, starting at verse 7, He says this, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. All things loss. For whom I have suffered Sorry, all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The Greek is a lot more explicit with the word rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law. See, he got it. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He thought righteousness came from the law. But he says, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that, is, that, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. God responds to my faith by making me righteous. This is outrageously unfair. What about if I've done all these terrible wrong things? Come here for a minute, seller. What if I get to the end of my life and he's Seller and Seller's been an angel on the face of the earth all her 70 odd years before she shuffles off into eternity and I've been a drug dealer and a criminal, I'll tell you about this later on, a drug dealer and a criminal and all these different things and yet when we stand before God, he sees us the same because when I put my faith in, In him, I received exactly the same amount of righteousness that this person did. (laughs) So it's not a competition, honey. (laughs) And here we go. This is this is where this is where he boils it down. 
that I may know him. He counts everything that he has lost as just rubbish. It was all worthless any, anyway because of this reason. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul knew where he was going. He knew that his eternity was guaranteed. You read about it through Galatians. You read about it through Romans. You read it through everything that he taught. He knew his destiny was assured. And even in spite of that destiny being insured, he made it the focal point of his life. I have to know the guy who made this possible. I have to know this expression of perfect love. I have never known anything like it, the perfection of the grace of the God who died for me and then after he died for me and went through all those things and rose from the grave when I simply said, yes, I believe that God raised you from the grave and I confess you with my lips. He goes, here, have this righteousness. Have my righteousness. (laughs) How good is the gospel? You know, we know that uh, the Apostle Paul was entrusted with so much of the New Testament the scripture that, that we speak about, that we preach from, that we, that we pray through. Paul has a stamp of authority and authenticity upon every word that he wrote because he lived it. He didn't just talk it, he walked it. And so I had a pretty good idea of the circumstances, but I went back and had another look. Paul wrote the words that I've just been speaking about from a prison cell in Rome, right near the centre of Rome, and it was near the end of his ministry. It's probably at this time 61 or 62 AD. Nero is emperor of Rome, of the Roman Empire. Persecution has become a reality for everybody who names Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Two years after he writes this letter to the Philippians, half of Rome burns down and Nero blames Christians for this act of burning down half of Rome even though they had nothing to do with it. And he was so, uh, so cruel and so unhinged that he would set Christians up on street corners as human candles. He would soak them in whatever uh, flammable material he had and he would set them on fire as human torches throughout the city as punishment for something that they never did. And Paul, I can imagine Paul in the depths of his dungeon smelling the smoke of burning human flesh around him, hearing the cries of people that are persecuted for something that they didn't do and he still has the guts and the determination and the perseverance to say, it is all worth it. When he wrote this, he was only four or five years from being beheaded for saying what he said, for spreading the gospel that he preached. This man who had been a Pharisee of Pharisees, this man who was destined for a life of wealth, influence and religious privilege forsook all that he might know Christ, the power of the resurrection that we have been celebrating this morning and the fellowship of his sufferings. I have news for you. You're going to suffer. Let me encourage you with this word. You are going to suffer. Do you know what the word encourage means? It means to place courage within you. I'm encouraging you by telling you, you're going to suffer. So decide what is worth the suffering. Is it your house, your car, your career? The things that the society around us holds so dear? Is that what is most precious to you? Or is it to know him and the power of his resurrection? Because the power of his resurrection has already spoken in your life and you have a testimony of what he's done. 
And he, that testimony that you carry and that faith that you carry in the name of Jesus is what gives you eternity because that faith is what says beyond anything that could happen in this realm, your eternity is assured. The power of the resurrection means the law of sin and death and the sentence of death over you and I, they've been broken. They've been broken. Snapped. How does this manifest in your life? When you put your faith in Jesus and you mean it, when you walk it, not just talk it, your entire world gets upside down. God takes... Your little toy box with you in it and he goes and flips the whole thing upside down. And in the process, the things that you thought were important don't seem quite so bright and shiny anymore. The idols that you served begin to come down. The power of your past is broken. Too many people on the face of the earth believe that their future is determined by their past. But Jesus redeemed you from your past. The power of your past is broken. You are no longer under the dominion of sin. You can make choices and not have them derailed by a demonic infestation of your mind, will and emotions. Strongholds are broken. Deliverance comes. Healing comes. The restoration of your broken life comes because of the power of of the resurrection. You don't really know me, who I was. I don't really know me, who I was. Because of the power of the resurrection, I can look back at who I was and just go, who's that guy? <laughs> you know, there's a saying in drug culture and drug rehab, it goes something like, oh, what's your drug of choice? And my answer would be, well, what do you got? Because whatever you got is my drug of choice if there's nothing else around. I was a drug addict. I was a drug dealer. There are probably people that went through years of addiction because of my sin and my crime. I had one focus in my entire life and it was me. I broke every relationship that was valuable to me. I lost things that I never should have lost. I didn't uh, become the person that I thought I was going to become. My life was destroyed. My mind was destroyed. I've been dead three times and God raised me three times. It's not an exaggeration. I mean, blue on the ground, no heartbeat, three times, way longer than three minutes each time. And I'm here to testify that God is good. And I'm here to testify that the goodness of God is expressed 
in the power of the resurrection. And when I took that step that I shared with you before, when I confessed the name of Jesus and believed that God had raised him from the grave, out of that simple act of faith, God said, I am going to bless this guy outrageously. He's going to suffer, but he's going to be transformed. You're going to suffer and it's going to be good because it's going to be good for you. It is good for us to suffer. <laughs> oh, forget the motivational preaching this morning. It is good for you to suffer. It is good for you to know the fellowship of what Jesus went through. It is good for you to get a glimpse of the agony that he went through so that you could freely have the gift of grace received by faith, that you could have imputed to you the righteousness of the Son of God. I think we need the worship team up. I forgot to mention this to you, Irene. Can we have King of Glory this morning? I was up in the, in the middle of the night seeking the Lord and I was asking him what he wanted to do this morning. And he gave me a picture in my heart of a sunrise, this beautiful sunrise. And when the sun rises, the darkness fades into the distance. Is that right? Darkness can't dispel light. Light dispels darkness. And I felt him take me to Malachi 4 verse 2. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. There is healing in this atmosphere here this morning. There is healing. There is deliverance. But most of all, there is renewal. There is something that God wants to do in our hearts today to release us into the next season. And there is an aspect of this where there are some specific pieces of baggage that He doesn't want us to take into the next season. And so as I was watching this beautiful sunrise, God began to give me some rather confronting words of knowledge for people that are here in this room and for sure people on live stream. And the first one is for those of us who are, do you know what a, a carpenter's bench looks like with that vice? With the vice, you know, you turn the handle and the thing squeezes in and it makes the thing, it's stuck, there it is. And then I, I felt the Lord give me a play on words. That there are those here this morning who are caught in a vice and they're caught in a vice of vice. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are people here that you have embraced a vice in your life and the Lord is saying to you this morning, go home and destroy that which has ensnared you. I'm challenging you this morning. If you have anything in your home 
on your phone, on your computer, books, magazines, whatever it might be, whatever it might be, go home and destroy that which has ensnared you. There are others here this morning and I hear the Father saying to you, I forgave you, now you go forgive them. I forgave you, now you go forgive them. It's not an invitation, it's a command. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. There are other people here today and on live stream and I felt the Lord wanted me to encapsulate what the breaking of ungodly soul ties actually means. The breaking of ungodly soul ties begins with separating the flesh that has come together outside of marriage. I'm talking about the ungodly soul ties that come from sexual relationships outside marriage. And the Lord is saying to you this morning, the breaking of ungodly soul ties begins with separating the flesh that has come together outside of marriage. Is this what you expected this morning, church? The Lord is speaking to those of us who are in the iron grip of pornography. The promise of God in any of these areas is exactly the same. If you confess your sins, he is righteous and just to forgive you from your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If Jesus imputed his righteousness to you, should you be embracing unrighteousness alongside what God has said is holy? Malachi 4.2 says, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. The fat that he's talking about is a really good thing. Let me give you an example from something that's been happening to us over the last week or so. We took in this stray kitten. It was dirty. It smelt like dung. Its fur was matted. There was stuff in its paws and in its claws that took like three scrubs to get rid of. It was full of worms. It was so thin. It was so scrawny. But then it became a stall-fed kitten. We got it the best kitten food you can get. And this thing went out that kitten food like you wouldn't believe. And any time it even hears the rattle of the bag, it comes charging over because it wants to feed on that which is good. The invitation to us this morning is that now that the Son of Righteousness is, is here with healing in His wings, can we stop feeding on that which would try to destroy us and begin feeding on His goodness so that we can grow fat in a healthy way? Amen? Can we stand this morning? And those of you who want to respond to any of this, and it doesn't have to be, like on Friday, it doesn't have to be the specific words of knowledge that I've just given. God is here sovereignly to meet you at your point of need and meet you where you, at the point where you want to lay these things down. If you want to come out and just do business with the Lord as we worship the King of glory, please do so. Let's take some time. It's only quarter to 12. Let's take some time to pour out our hearts before the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit 
to touch you at that place where you have allowed the unholy to, to coexist with the holy in your life. And when you do respond, if you're responding to one of these specific things that I've read out, I want you to come to me or come to one of the other members of the ministry team. Can I have the ministry team out here, please, now? Come out here, please. Come to me or come to one of the members of the ministry. Come on, Renee. Where's Sylvia? Can you come out, please? When you come out, if, this, if, if there is something specific that I've already mentioned here that you want to get right with God about, the Bible says confess your sin one to another. Is that right? I want to, want to tell you that what you confess to me or any member of the ministry team is confidential. But whatever is hidden in darkness and remains hidden in darkness has power. But when you bring something to the light, the darkness no longer has any power. Is that right? And that's why the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings to those who fear His name. If you fear His name, you'll respond to His Word in these areas. So Lord, as we begin to worship You, I want to invite the power of Your Holy Spirit to come upon this gathering right now. I would ask Holy Spirit, that you would come and begin ministering the power of your resurrection to each one of us here this morning gathered in your presence. Lord, let no heart remain untouched. Let no heart be turned away from the searchlight of your spirit, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do.